please stand and let's turn to John 10 for our New Testament reading. Read verses 1 through 8, and our sermon text will be Zechariah chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Amen. Now, I went a little further than I said. I meant 18, not 8. Now, Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah 10. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. From the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, 
from him, every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scatter them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. And all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name declares the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. A teacher of mine from seminary named uh, Tim Whitmer wrote a book about ministry called The Shepherd Leader, where he tells an anecdote about a tour group traveling in Israel, and their tour guide was explaining to them that uh, shepherds, supposedly, always lead their sheep from uh, in front of the flock, and they never drive them from behind. So later on, uh, the story goes, one of the tourists saw uh, a flock of sheep outside the bus window, and um, so there was a man who was not out in front leading the sheep. He was walking along behind them and appeared to be driving them. And so the tourist thinks, oh, this tour guide doesn't know what he's talking about. He says, hey, I thought you said, the tour guide says, oh, no, that wasn't the shepherd. That was the butcher. So, anyway, um, I can't verify that story, but it's a good illustration. Um, Shepherding is a metaphor the Bible uses quite a bit in many places to illustrate truths about about leadership among God's people. Uh, God's leadership of his people, for one thing, as well as human leadership under God. And um, we're all, all very familiar with positive portrayals of this. For example, in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, right? Uh, or John 10, like I read earlier, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. Uh, but there are other places, especially in the prophets, where the Lord uses that same word picture to describe what we might call the bad shepherds. That's the title of tonight's sermon, in fact. Um, actually, the bad shepherds themselves take up only a small part of this chapter. They're in verse 3. But they provide for the entire chapter an important Um, foil, we could say, a a kind of contrast, both with the Lord's leadership, this better kind of leadership the Lord is going to provide for his people, and the kinds of leaders that God is going to provide for them um, in the future, in the restoration from exile. Uh, So I want to look at this chapter in three parts tonight. First will be 
uh, verses 1 and 2, where to look for what you need. Where to look for what you need. Uh, Second will be the bad shepherds and the good shepherd. It's verses 3 through 5. And then third, echoes of Exodus in the end of the exile. Verses 6 through 12. Echoes of Exodus in the end of the exile. All right, so first let's uh, deal with this question uh, about where to look for what you need. Um, Verses 1 and 2 present us with a contrast between two different places that God's people can could look uh, to find um, their to get their needs met. So the question is: When you have a need, when there's something wrong, and you're trying to figure out what's to be done about it, um, this is something for us thinking about our own situation. What is your first instinct? Where do you look for what you need? Um, Say, who are you going to call? Um, and that's, that's really the question here. And so what we should do is we should read verse 1 as kind of the opposite of verse 2. I actually want to look at verse 2 first. It talks about the household gods. Uh, these idols, the Hebrew word is teraphim, um, that the Canaanites would uh, keep in their homes, household gods. So that's one place that the Israelites might turn um, as one commentator points out, it's, it's kind of interesting and a little scary, really, that even here, after the return from exile, after the temple has been rebuilt, that this is still a problem. Idolatry, after all, is what got Israel into trouble in the first place, what led them into exile to begin with. And now this remnant is back in the land, and they're supposed to be restoring the true worship of the one true God. And Zechariah here is still having to talk to them about these little household gods from Canaanite religion. I thought we were way past this, we might think. This is, this is just superstition that they're involved with. It's superstition. And it's once again borrowing from their neighbors. Okay? It's, it's absorbing the culture around them. When you think about having little household gods, it seems kind of foreign, and we seem disconnected from that. We can't even imagine um, putting little statues in our Well. Some people might be able to. I mean, you'd be surprised how many people might have little statues in their house these days, but that's a different story. Um, But this idea of of absorbing the culture around them, that is a little more relatable, right? So instead of putting a stop to pagan religion, what's happening instead is they're steeping in it. They're steeping in the world around them. They are being influenced by the culture instead of cultivating the distinct countercultural patterns of trust in the Lord alone that are supposed to characterize the people of the covenant. And Zechariah wants to show them here the folly of what they're being tempted to do. Are you serious? You guys want to put these little teraphim, these little household gods in your houses? The household gods utter nonsense, he says. Um, and it's not just the little statues either. It's, either. it's the whole system of Canaanite religion. It's the whole uh, kind of um, religious world of the culture they're living in. Because along with those idols, those outward trappings, there are also the, these diviners, the kind of messengers of pagan religion, these people who are pushing that false religion. And these are people who are claiming that they can give spiritual insight. They can give you 
guidance and, and tell you what things are really like and what's really going to happen and what you really ought to do. Something you've got to understand is that the temptation here for the people in Jerusalem was not for people to stop worshiping and listening to the Lord and to follow these teraphim and these diviners instead. It was probably much more of a both-and kind of thing. Of course we worship the Lord. We're Israelites, after all. And also, well, we have, we have these other things that we do, too. We have these add-ons, and imagine saying, well, these, having these little teraphim in my house, it's, it's just so meaningful to me, you know? Um, I've been reading this, this Baal blog that really speaks to me. I've been listening to this uh, Marduk and Me mindfulness meditation podcast. And it's just ah, so deep, so authentic. I just love it. See, the temptation for Israel was to have this eclectic religion. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, from this spiritual smorgasbord of ancient culture. And that problem hasn't gone away in Zechariah's day just because these people have been restored from exile. And it has not gone away in our day either just because we're New Testament Christians. Because we still live in a world and an America of eclectic spirituality. And there are more choices than ever now. Again, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. That is how so many people put together their religious life. And let me tell you, Christians are not immune to that. The, the religion of the culture around us, though, we've got to understand, it utters nonsense. It's diviners. could be bloggers, could be podcasters or whatever. There are a lot of voices out there through a lot of media. But when they're teaching you to depart from the Word of God... And the scriptures alone is your authority for what you're going to believe and how you're going to live your life and seek peace with God and inward peace for yourself. They see lies like these diviners. They utter nonsense. They give you false dreams and empty consolation. What Zechariah is warning the people against here, uh, against here is the same warnings we need to take heart today. Nonsense, lies, false dreams, empty consolation. That's what you're going to get when you go wandering after other kinds of spirituality and try to add them on to the Christian faith. You first encounter them, you might think, oh, this feels really nice. This seems so meaningful. This is really fresh. This is authentic. It is empty consolation. So I want to ask you again, where do you look for what you need? Where is the first place you're going to turn for help, for guidance, for answers when you have a major life question? What do you count on ultimately? Ultimately, at the rock bottom, what are you counting on to see that your needs get met? To reassure you, maybe, um, when life feels unstable, to reassure you that things are going to be okay. Um, so far, I mentioned just the explicitly religious stuff that's out there. That's just part of it, because there are other versions of this, other places that we look for help. Again, where do you look for what you need? For a lot of people, it's, it's, it's financial, where the idol is money, and people are looking to all the financial diviners out there uh, to tell them what's going to happen, 
with the markets, what's going to happen with their money, how they can be financially secure, and by becoming financially secure, they feel like they're going to be ultimately secure. But, um, yeah, you think talk about people telling false dreams. Empty consolation it happens all the time in, in the financial world of things. And there are plenty of very wealthy people who are still deeply, deeply unhappy and destined for hell. Um, For a lot of people, it it might also be uh, political. We talk about the financial, we talk about the political. People whose hopes and fears kind of rise and fall with the fortunes of their political heroes, their political tribe. Again, look at public life today, you think what utter nonsense and lies and false dreams and empty consolation. You get... For so many places. For some people, um, the where they look might be more along, a little softer, a little squishier, but more along the, like, the psychological, the therapeutic. If I could just get better insight, better kind of self-help, uh, better treatment maybe, then that's what's going to give my life stability. That's what's going to make me truly happy. And of course, we've got a whole host of, of diviners for that. Tell us. Um, how to fix our problems through kind of pulling ourselves up, changing our thought patterns, and and that's going to fix everything that's wrong in your life. Let's see, again, Zechariah's response here, the Lord's response through his prophet. And this brings us back to verse 1. You know, I kind of skipped over verse 1. I'll show you the wrong way first in verse 2. But that's the context for why verse 1 says what it says. Ask rain from the Lord, he says. When you need rain, and again, we should be thinking about this agricultural society where they subsist on whether or not they get good spring rains or not. That, that's, that's what they depend on to get a good crop that year so that they can survive, right? Well, when you need rain, ask rain from the Lord. Ask for it from the one who actually made the storm clouds because he's the one who can actually give you showers of rain and growth in your fields. If you want rain, he's saying, don't do like your pagan neighbors, neighbors do. Don't go and ask their diviners. Don't go and, you know, I know they all do it. I know that it's mainstream. I know it's the way your neighbors deal with these problems and needs and uncertainties and, and big questions about life. But you're supposed to be different, Zechariah is saying. You know better. You are in covenant with the creator of all things. Shouldn't that make a difference? And where you look for what you need compared to somebody else who doesn't have that relationship with God. You of all people should know that, as James will put it later in the New Testament, that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. And so if you need rain, you should be asking the Lord, the Lord who made the clouds. Should be asking these kind of cheap knockoff gods that can't actually do anything for you, and they're cheap knockoff prophets, because what you're going to get from them is nonsense, lies, false dreams, and empty consolation. Don't fall for it. When you have the Lord right there to listen to you and to answer, I think I've shared with you before a great quote from John Calvin, 
where he says, we must learn to expect and ask all things from God and thankfully ascribe to God whatever we receive. could shorten that up by saying, expect everything from God, ascribe everything to God. Now, does God use means? Yeah, all kinds. I mean, he created the world to be, it's like the poem, the world is so full of a number of things, I think we should all be as happy as kings, right? God is, has filled the world chock full of things that are useful to us, helpful um, uh, for, for providing for us. He, he's, he's built all kinds of people and things into the world to give that help and provision. Sure. In fact, um, God very frequently uses all kinds of non-Christian people who often do have great insight, great common sense, great um, uh, uh, learning that comes from God and that can help us. And it's one of God's ways of providing for what we need. But what we've got to keep in mind... Um, oh, and by the way, that applies to the financial. That applies to the political and it applies to the psychological and uh, therapeutic. But what we've got to keep in mind in all of these areas is that ultimately what we need comes from the Lord. We expect everything from him and we ascribe everything to him. And when you think that way, that provides guardrails for us, doesn't it? Helps us to remember not to look for or accept proffered help that runs counter to God's word and God's ways. Whatever means God may use to provide for us, we are ultimately to acknowledge everything we have is a gift from him. A gift that we don't deserve. It's the overflow of his grace, of his fatherly kindness to us in Christ. Like Paul says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That kind of God is going to be willing to give you anything that you really need and that's really good for you. So where do you look for what you need? The point here is let's look to the Lord. Let's look to the Lord and let's beware of borrowing from a world system that is peddling to us a pack of nonsense, lies, false dreams, and empty consolation. Don't fall for it. Okay, now the end of verse 2 starts to connect this spiritual problem among God's people with a serious leadership problem among God's people. There's a connection between um, this, this bad leadership, bad influence that the people are getting from pagan religion. There's a connection between that and this leadership failure among the people who ought to have been feeding the Israelites with God's word who ought to have been pointing them persistently to the Lord as the source of help for their needs. Therefore, he says, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. This reminds me a great deal of Matthew chapter 9. You remember the scene where Jesus looks at the crowds who have gathered uh, to, to follow him around, and it says, I had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
that passage um, echoes, and maybe this one too, echoes uh, the book of Numbers. It's less well known, but in Numbers 27, that same phrase appears, seen where Joshua is being set apart as a leader, the leader who's going to come after Moses. And when the Lord makes Joshua a leader in that chapter, he says he's doing it so that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep who have no shepherd. God is providing for them this shepherd that they need, the instrument of his shepherding care for Israel. Now, you think about Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, of course, there were people in place who were supposed to be spiritually shepherding Israel. You've got the priests, the scribes, and so on. But again, you see, in, leader, in Jesus' day, there had been a major, catastrophic leadership failure in Israel. And the same thing seems to be true, at least in parts of Israelite life in Zechariah's day. In verse 2, he says that the people are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. But in verse 3, he clarifies, well, of course, there, there are shepherds. They're, they're just really bad shepherds. My anger is hot against the shepherds. And I will punish, uh, well, you can see the footnote there, um, it, where it says leaders. It's literally the male goats. So you have the shepherds and the male goats. Um, one com- commentator suggests, I think this is a pretty good interpretation, this is reflecting kind of two layers of leadership. You can imagine the military, you have the commissioned officers, and then you have the NCOs, right? Um, both different kinds of leaders on sort of different levels with different purposes. The point here is both levels have failed. And the Lord is guaranteeing here that he is going to deal personally with this problem of leaders in Israel who have not been carrying out their calling to feed and care for the Lord's sheep. Their failure helps reveal then, by contrast, the powerful and gentle and attentive care that the Lord himself, the shepherd of Israel, Um, has for his people. Um, Even, we say especially, when their human leaders or under-shepherds let them down. He says, For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah. Their human leaders may not care, but the Lord is always going to care for them. And and here's what God's going to do then. He says he's going to make his people like his majestic steed in battle. And I like that. It's like we saw last time how the the Lord is um, making Israel part of his victorious work in the world. He is involving them in in what he is doing, in his mission in the world. Okay, also, God is going to provide for them with better human leaders in the future. This is part of God's shepherding care for his people is to provide us with the human shepherds, the under-shepherds that we need. Um, Consistently throughout the Bible, there's this theme that good spiritual leaders for the covenant community are a gift that can only come from God, because it is God who raises up these leaders and who equips them with gifts through the Holy Spirit that only he can provide. So from him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. It's all of these word pictures piled one on top of the other of solid leadership. Word pictures for solid leadership. And he's going to 
Uh, it says he's going to make these leaders like mighty men in battle who are going to trample the foe. Um, they're going to fight because the Lord is with, with them. They're going to put to shame the powerful attackers, the riders on horses, um, who are going to try to attack the people of God. Uh, again, remember what I was quoting earlier from Calvin about expecting everything from God and attributing everything to God. That's true of life in general, as we saw earlier, but it's particularly true in this case of leadership in the church. This is why we pray for God to send laborers into his harvest. We pray for God to raise up new elders and deacons and pastors and missionaries for our church, for our denomination, for the church in general. Why do we pray for those things? Why are we asking God to do that? It's because we cannot provide those kinds of leaders for the church by our own power, our own creativity, our own wisdom. God has to act to raise them up and give them the gifts that they need. Now, we can see this theme in Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul describes Lord Jesus Christ ascending into heaven, and from heaven it says he gave to the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds. Shepherds, who knows if Paul had this passage in the back of his mind at that point, but surely he had this Old Testament theme in his mind. Where is the church going to get shepherds? By the way, that's what pastor means. It means shepherd. Where is the church going to get these leaders that it needs? It's only going to be from the Lord. It's only going to be from the great and good shepherd of the sheep who cares for his flock. And listen, I want to tell you this too, that when our human shepherds fail and struggle, whether that's in the kind of big and tragic ways that you hear about that just rock the church to its foundations, or if it's just in the everyday ways where you know, men like me who don't measure up to what we ought to be. And we lack the wisdom and skill that we feel we need. We get things wrong. We make mistakes. We hurt people's feelings. We, we fall so often so far short of what we ought to be. And when those things happen, you need to be reassured by pastors like this one that you can trust nevertheless. You can trust then, most of all, in the perfect shepherding care of the Lord of hosts who cares for you without fail will never leave you or forsake you and we can look to him together sheep and under shepherds alike we can look to him together to raise up new leaders for us uh, now the church needs today and for generations to come for this local church for the church in general there are things that the Lord is going to provide. And we need to be looking to him for that. Okay, well, let's move on here. So if verses 3 through 5 uh, zoom in on the problem of bad human leaders and then the better ones that God's going to provide. So verse 6 kind of zooms back out. And the rest of the chapter really focuses on what the Lord personally is going to do. This big picture shepherding work of God in remedying all that has gone wrong for Israel in the exile. I'm calling this last point echoes of Exodus in the end of the exile. And that's really what I want to focus on here in these closing verses. Um, uh, he says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph, is the first thing. And notice then, this is not just the southern kingdom that we're talking about. 
Uh, God is talking about the restoration of all Israel, north and south. Um, it's, a, it's a first clue. Um, I've mentioned the commentator Makomsky several times. Um, he makes a good point here. Um, this uh, picture of this reunification of the northern and southern kingdoms in the return from exile, this is the first clue that the Lord is pointing us here towards something beyond the political, physical, ethnic restoration of Israel in the Middle East as a political entity there. This is something more and bigger than that. This, this kind of comprehensive, grand gathering of all the people of God in one, this is ultimately about a future hope that is bigger than this one family and nation and land. But what's happening here is it is being framed in terms of the return from exile and the exodus from Egypt. Um, another clue here is the repeated mention of Assyria. You might think, oh, wait a second, Assyria. The Assyrian Empire was long gone by Zechariah's day. Assyria had been defeated by Babylon years, decades before. And, and now Babylon has been defeated by Persia. So we're like two empires after the Assyrians by now. So why are we still talking about Assyria? Well, for one thing, bringing the northern kingdom into view, Ephraim and the other northern tribes are still in exile in that Assyrian region. But more than that, Assyria here, I think, is, um, has a symbolic value as well. This is, as I was talking about what Assyria stands for, um, something Ian Duguid points out, you have here, Egypt is to the south. If you looked on a map, it talks about Egypt and Assyria here. They're the main enemies that are in view in this chapter. Egypt is, is down to the south of Israel. Assyria is up to the north. And so it's like God is taking in both directions. Like God is reaching out his arms infinitely wide to gather in his people wherever they may be scattered. Wherever their sin has taken them, None of those places are too far, too distant for God to reach and to gather his people back in. Um, and so on the one hand, this, this new exodus, as we might call it, is going to be in some ways like the original exodus from Egypt. Uh, verse 11 says, he shall pass through the sea of troubles. And that kind of reminds us of the Red Sea crossing, right? On the other hand, this new exodus is also going to be greater than the original exodus. Exodus from Egypt. Later that same, uh, that verse says, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. Now that didn't happen under Moses. When Israel left Egypt the first time, the Nile River did not dry up. That would have been pretty amazing. It's an amazing image uh, for the prophet to give us here. This is about something more dramatic than happened in the first Exodus. Um, notice then how this new restored Israel after the exile is going to be bigger and better than Israel has ever been before. Look at verse 10 where it says, I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. Now, Gilead um, was the area east of the Jordan River um, uh, that was kind of just, just barely part of the promised land, right on the edges, but, but not really in the heartland. It's on the east of the Jordan. Most of the promised land is to the west of the Jordan. Lebanon was, was not even part of Israel's territory at all. But in this prophetic picture, what's happening is there are so many of God's people that they're bursting at the seams. 
God settles them in these outlying territories, Gilead and Lebanon, because they won't all fit in, in the promised land itself. And even then, there's not room for everybody. See, the, the promised land is just overflowing this, with these people. They are fruitful and multiplying and on their way to filling the earth, really, if you think in terms of the original creation mandate and the original trajectory of God's plan for history. And why is this happening? It's happening because God is with them. It says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Ju- Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them, verse 6. And then verse 12, the same theme. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. There's so much more we could say about this, but what I want us to understand tonight is that we are living out right now in the time of fulfillment. What Zechariah was looking forward to here in the time of promise. I'm just kind of skipping to the end here because I want you to see this clearly that the Lord, the Lord has gathered us in from among the nations. He has saved us. He has redeemed us as this passage is talking about redeemed us by the blood of Jesus' son, right? God is right now gathering what Revelation 7 describes as a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages to stand before the throne and before the Lamb. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he's doing what this passage says when it talks about making us strong in the Lord. And listen, here in the church, our children, our children are going to see this and be glad, as Zechariah says, and their hearts will rejoice in the Lord as they see this taking place, as they see it taking place in their children's lives, in their children's lives, in that ongoing covenantal progress of God's kingdom. So this, what Zechariah is describing here is something that God is doing now. He is building this kingdom that Zechariah prophesied, a united kingdom, a strong kingdom under the Lord's leadership ultimately, but he's also promised to provide the human leaders, the under-shepherds that the church is going to need under, of course, the oversight of our great and good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, let me tell you, that is good news for God's people. And it is all the reason that we need, then, to devote ourselves, Zechariah calls us here in the final verse, to walk in his name. To walk in his name in the midst of a world that is always trying to get us to add on its own version of spirituality. Yeah, you can trust Jesus. Frankly, the world doesn't mind very much if you trust Jesus as long as you agree to trust them to trust us too. This passage is reminding you it's the Lord Jesus who is your shepherd. It's the Lord Jesus who is your king. And you are to expect everything from him and ascribe everything to him. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, who gave his life, laid down his life for the sheep. And we're so thankful for his death on the cross, for our sins, for his resurrection from the dead, and the hope of forgiveness and eternal life we have through faith in him. We do ask that you would, um, as the great shepherd, raise up the shepherds that your church needs.
um, uh, raise up the laborers, send them out into the harvest, um, and provide for your church, we pray, the, those, those gifts that we need generation after generation until Christ comes again. Come quickly, our good shepherd, Lord Jesus. Amen.